Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back to our surgical podcast. Today we have Dr. Henry Pretorius, HPV surgeon from Steve Cooper Academic Hospital. And we're going to be talking about portal hypertension. Welcome, Dr. Pretorius. Hi. What is portal hypertension? Portal hypertension is uh, uh, when your portal pressures, which means the pressure was in your portal system, so six and up millimeters of mercury. And when do you start becoming symptomatic from that pressure? So, um, so there's a big range of your portal pressures, but usually you'll only start showing symptoms when your pressure reaches um, 12 and above. These are very low pressures if you compare them to arterial blood pressure. What is the reason for this? So remember it's a portal vein, it's not a portal artery um, and the reason we call it a vein is because the um, volume within the portal system is determined by the capillary bed which has to be drained and the portal system drains your GI um, system basically from your esophagus all the way to your anus and including um, the proximal third of the, of the anal canal and then including your um, certain organs such as your pancreas. Um, this whole vascular bed has to fill and the volume is constant but the portal vein accommodates for that by splitting into the liver and forming a new capillary bed within the liver and therefore your pressures are not as high as with arterial but there's a, a lot of flow and a lot of volume going through. You mentioned some anatomy here, could you maybe please give us a brief description of the central portal system? Okay, so um, the important thing is to understand is that all the, the veins from the GI tract come together in the main portal vein. And they that's basically three veins that come together, which is the splenic vein, the superior mesenteric vein, and then the inferior mesenteric vein, which can either join at the confluence of the two, or on the splenic or on the superior mesenteric vein. Where does the splenic vein join the superior mesenteric vein? So they join um, behind the neck of the pancreas. How does the portal blood eventually get to the systemic circulation? So once the portal vein is split into the liver, into the capillary blood, they get they refill by the hepatic veins. And the hepatic veins join um, at the top of the liver at the back, where it enters into the IVC as a main hepatic venous trunk. Apart from the liver, are there other portosystemic connections? So we refer to them as portosystemic shunts, which are also the areas where you'll find signs of portal hypertension. And that would be the most common one that is the gasosophageal junction. We find gasosophageal varices. Other areas which are less likely to be seen are the retroperitoneum. You can usually see that on a CT scan. The proximal um, anorectal junction area. There's hemorrhoidal veins, which could form a shunt and these patients could develop internal hemorrhoids. The diaphragm and the bare surface of the liver itself can also form uh, um, varices and shunting. And then, uh, but the important one that you might have to look for if you have very advanced disease, some people can present what we call caput medusae, which is at the umbilicus where the umbilical vein opens up and forms a portosystemic shunting. How do you classify the causes of portal hypertension? So the system we use, we talk about pre-hepatic, hepatic and post-hepatic causes. The most common ones that we usually um, find are the hepatic causes, but they are... What are the common pre-hepatic causes of portal hypertension? So pre-hepatic we have bellagia, 
um, which is quite common in adults, and we should know them because in South Africa we have areas which is endemic with um, Bellagia or schistosomiasis. And in children, when you have neonatal sepsis, they can have portal vein thrombosis. And this can also give them um, a portal vein thrombus, which causes prehepatic um, portal hypertension. Sometimes can present in adulthood. Why do these neonates get portal vein thrombosis? So um, the reason why neonates get uh, portal vein thrombosis is actually because the pediatricians use the umbilical vein as a venous axis and that catheter within the vein can um, lead to thrombosis. What are the most common hepatic causes in South Africa? Um, so there are four main um, hepatic causes that are common and in South Africa I think the most, by far the most common would be hepatitis B. But the four are hepatitis B, hepatitis C, alcoholic liver cirrhosis and the new kid on the block which is bypassing alcoholic liver cirrhosis now is NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And the other hepatic causes are quite rare and we're not going to go into them in this podcast. What are the most common post-hepatic causes of portal hypertension? There's basically one that's important um, that you should know about, and that's called Bacciari syndrome, which is a veno-occlusive disease where um, the hepatic veins um, get thrombosed and this leads to portal hypertension. The important thing to understand is this can be at quite different levels. It can be from the sinusoids all the way into the right um, atrium where this thrombosis can occur, and it's usually diagnosed on uh, either imaging or, or a biopsy. How do patients with portal hypertension typically present? So first thing to remember is there are certain risk factors for portal hypertension. So these patients can actually present with their primary pathologies, let's say for example cirrhosis and all the signs of cirrhosis. Um, so when you find these patients, it's important to go look for the portal hypertension, screen, etc. But patients presenting without a risk factor or didn't know to seek medical attention for the risk factors, when they present with portal hypertension, they usually present with bleeding from um, the portosystemic shunt varices, which is the most common site, would be our upper GI bleed from gastroesophageal varices. Let's make a clinical scenario. Say you're the casualty officer and two patients, both 40-year-old males, present simultaneously with upper GI bleeds. One is because of a peptic ulcer disease bleed and the other is a variceal bleed. What is your approach to go about differentiating between the two of these patients? So always remember when this patient comes in with the upper GIB to do your ABCs, they are the same. You keep the patient stable and then you want to evaluate what the cause would be. So the main, main thing here would be your history taking and your clinical examination. History taking, look for, look for risk factors for peptic ulcer disease, such as NSAID use, smoking, Epigastric pain is a good sign because varices are not tender. In your otherwise in history, you take history for causes for cirrhosis. Is the patient a known hepatitis carrier? Is the patient a known alcoholic? Does he have some rare or wonderful disease causing cirrhosis? If, if B, examine the patient. Does the patient have tenderness in the epigastric region? Then you're thinking ulcer disease. Does the patient have a palpable spleen? You're thinking most likely it's going to be variceal disease. And then the last thing is look for all the other signs of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, such as kaput medusae, spider nevi, and all those things. Are there any blood tests that can help you differentiate between a peptic ulcer disease bleed and a variceal bleed? Um, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, 
your liver function test will make you think of um, pathology leading to portal hypertension. So if you have abnormal liver functions, that would make you think of, but wouldn't necessarily confirm it. But if you find a patient's platelet count to be less than 100, this is quite indicative that the blood is shunting through the spleen and being um, sequestrated, the platelets, and therefore this you would take as a variceal bleed until proven otherwise by endoscopy. When it comes to the treatment of an upper GIT bleed, earlier you mentioned that the ABCs of resuscitation are the same. So with um, ulcer disease, the mainstay of your therapy would be PPIs. But then for uh, variceal bleed, um, the treatment would still be a PPI to stabilize the clot, but that's not the mainstay of the therapy. The therapy you want to do is to decrease your splanchnic and portal pressures. This is done with a somatostatin analog, such as most commonly uses are creotide. On top of that, you want to give an antibiotic as some form of an infection most likely exacerbated the portal hypertensive episode, which led to the patient bleeding. And then to remember, when you're reading on variceal bleeds and management, you'll, you'll come across the fact that they use beta blockers. This is only used once the patient is stable, ready for discharge to prevent a future bleed. It's not used in the acute management as it will um, stop the patient's heart from compensating for the hypertension and can actually be dangerous. So in summary what you've said is that all patients with a suspected variceal bleed should be started on three agents, that is a somatostatin analogue such as octreotide, a proton pump inhibitor and a prophylactic antibiotic, whereas your peptic ulcer disease bleeds are really only started on a proton pump inhibitor. Are there any clinical prediction tools that we can use in these patients with variceal bleeding um, that either predict re-bleeding or mortality? A very, very well-known scoring system would be the child's pew scoring system, uh, which looks at five parameters. The important thing with the child's pew scoring system when you calculate it is to see if you can find perhaps bloods that were drawn prior to the acute bleed, as the acute bleed itself can actually overestimate the severity of the underlying liver disease. Once your patient is stable, what is the role of gastroscopy? So number one, to make a diagnosis. You want to see is it a peptic ulcer bleed or is it a variceal bleed. People with varices can still get ulcers. So that's the first role of the endoscopy. The second role is obviously to manage the bleed accordingly. What options do we have to stop variceal bleeding endoscopically? So there's banding, there's sclerotherapy, there um, are endoscopic stents nowadays, um, and including then there's also balloon tamponades that you could use. Injection sclerotherapy and rubber band ligation are probably the most common ways of treating these bleeds. What are your thoughts on which one we should use when? Definitely rubber band um, ligation. Sclerotherapy is probably more difficult. You don't have as much vision and it's got more side effects such as um, stricturing of the distal esophagus. Also you can only inject so many times per session and which means you have to come back and repeated um, sclerotherapy sessions would be required. As with banding, you band, um, you can put a lot of bands until it stops bleeding and it's under vision. What should we do if rubber band ligation or injection sclerotherapy fails to stop a variceal bleed? So obviously if a patient is bleeding, you want the bleeding to stop. 
Um, so you would use some other means of endoscopic management, even if it's temporary, such as a self-expanding stent in the esophagus, just to compress on the varices for now. If you don't have that, you can use a stent stock and black milk tube, um, which you can inflate and put into traction. This is important, we can talk about later how to place it. What is a Slingstalken Blakemore tube? Um, so a Slingstalken Blakemore tube, uh, think of it as a, as a squid. It's got a head, it's got a body, and it's got its tentacles at the end. So the head would be the gastric portion of the balloon, which we inflate into the stomach and then put onto traction. The esophageal part would be the body of the squid, which then inflates into the esophagus itself. And then the tentacles are the actual ports at the end. There are four ports. The one to, to inflate the gastric portion, one to inflate the esophageal portion, and then two drainage points, one in the stomach and one proximal in the esophagus. How do you use the same stuff in black tube? So it's used for uncontrolled bleeding at endoscopy when you couldn't control it with banding or stereotherapy and you don't have a stent. Um, then you would place this, but the important thing is before you place it, to remember you have to protect the patient's airway. A lot of times these patients will come in quite ill. If they are uncontrolled bleeding, they probably would be tubed already. But if not, you need to intubate the patient prior to placing this tube, as this has got an increase risk for aspiration, and then they could die. Um, so first thing first, intubate the patient. Then you place your stent slot on the base tube. Okay, so the gastric balloon takes 250 mils and is inflated first after which the, um, it's placed onto traction with one kilogram used with a one liter ringers um, bag and then the esophageal port is aspirated to dry. Then you wait one hour, you re-aspirate the esophageal port. If there's blood, it means it's bleeding proximal to your gastric balloon, you have to inflate your esophageal balloon. Um, and then remember to deflate the esophageal portion only every four to six hours for 10 to 15 minutes before re-inflating it to prevent pressure necrosis of the esophagus. Once the patient has stabilized and at least 72 hours have passed, how do we then further manage the tube? Okay, so we, um, then we can deflate the tube, we remove the tube and we re-endoscopy to ensure that there's no bleeding and you may even band some more varices if you see them. In up to 20% of patients, the Sengstark and Blakemore tube fails to stop variceal bleeding. What should we do in that circumstance? Yeah, so usually while it's inflated, it shouldn't be bleeding. Um, but the question is whether it will re-bleed when you deflate it and you can't control it still. If that's the case, one would obviously then re-inflate it in the meantime, but then you have to urgently get a TIPS procedure done to decrease the portal pressures. What is a TIPS procedure? So it stands for transjugular um, intrahepatic portovenous shunting which is basically a little stent or a pipe placed between the portal circulation and the hepatic venous circulation to have a bypass of blood to decrease the pressure in the portal system into the RBC. TIPS is a very specialized um, intervention and not all interventional radiologists can perform it. If we're in an environment where we don't have someone to place a TIPS, what other options do we have? This would be where surgeons come in and we do surgical shunting. Okay, so let's say the patient has stopped bleeding, they've stabilized, the hemoglobin hasn't dropped. What is your further management for this patient before they can go home? We want to prevent recurrent bleeding. So this is done with a beta blocker then. This is like propanolol, it's 
um, commonly used. Um, we use this as an outpatient and we aim for a systolic blood pressure of more than 90, a heart rate of less than 60 but more than 55. And then we re-endoscopy the patient into a planning program. What side effect are you most worried about when prescribing a beta blocker? So the most common side effects would be orthostatic hypertension and dizziness. Earlier you mentioned surgical shunts. What are indications for performing a surgical shunt? Okay, so first I would say if you've got uncontrolled or ongoing bleeding in the patient, which is not so elective, um, but still, you can plan it because you've got a stent stock and black mood tube. Um, if your TIPS procedure has failed, this would be an indication for, um, for a surgical shunt. Or a patient who is on best therapy with endoscopic banding and beta blockers, who still come in with recurrent bleeding, the, these patients' uh, shunts should be considered. Uh, the other indication would be patients with contraindications to the medical therapy like beta blockers. Um, yes, and in our circumstance, we will also place patients who do not have access to endoscopy or who live far and cannot get the medication from where they're at. Which surgical options do we have available for patients who have indications for surgical intervention with portal hypertension? So there are three main categories. Um, there's shunting, devascularization procedures, and then there's transplant. Elaborate a little bit on surgical shunts. So shunting, um, you should divide it into the selective and non-selective shunting. And the indications would be whether it's left-sided or portal hypertension or whether it's um, in the patient who's acutely bleeding, you would rather do a non-selective. With left-sided, you'll do a selective shunt. So your selective shunt, most commonly used, you guys should know of, probably distal renal shunt. And then your non-selective two shunts you should know about would be mesocable shunt and a portocable shunt. What are devascularization procedures? So devascularization procedures is a way that you're trying to avoid uh, venous drainage via the G-junction mostly. So it's we actually skeletonize the esophageal gastric junction. That's the one and the other one would be by transecting the stomach off the esophagus and reanastomosing it to try and devascularize the two from communicating to have a portosystemic shunt. And lastly, what is the role of a liver transplant? So liver transplant is actually an excellent therapy for portal hypertension, but it's just an organ shortage. A liver transplant would treat one, the underlying cause of, of the portal hypertension, like cirrhosis, etc. And then secondly, it takes away the portal hypertension completely. When would you consider using a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, or TIPS as they are more commonly known? So in modern medicine, TIPS have really um, moved forward um, in the sense that the stents have become more durable and they don't thrombose up within six months to a year anymore. They now can last longer. So I think TIPS, once endoscopic and medical therapy are not working, TIPS would be your number one choice before even thinking of any surgical options. Could you please summarize portal hypertension for our listeners? So I think one should summarize it in the clinical scenario where a patient comes in bleeding. First and foremost thing is stabilize the patient and stop the acute bleed. Secondly, find the cause for the portal hypertension and treat appropriately. And then thirdly, on discharge, have the patient a program where you're going to prevent future bleeds with medical therapy, endoscopic therapy, and if need be, additional uh, procedures. As always, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Pretorius, and I'm sure we'll hear from you in future podcasts.
This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.